Studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, welcome to our special Louisiana Eats podcast series, Tammany Taste Quick Bites. I'm Poppy Tooker. Foie gras. That's French for fat liver. This celebrated luxury food is found mostly in high-end restaurants where even a small amount is quite costly. Traditionally, foie gras production has centered in the Aquitaine region of France, where for hundreds of years, duck and geese have been carefully fattened in order to produce the large, ivory-colored lobes. Force-feeding is usually mentioned in conjunction with foie gras production, but the truth is wild birds in nature annually gorge themselves before migration. Domestically, that process is humanely mimicked by caretakers who gently hand-feed their birds a high-calorie meal that aids in the fattening, a process known as gavage. There has been limited foie gras production attempted in the U.S., but today, Ross McKnight is creating some of the most beautiful foie gras seen this side of the Atlantic Ocean at his farmstead, Backwater Foie Gras, in Bush, Louisiana. I got to know Ross, visiting with him weekly at the Crescent City Farmer's Market. What a thrill it was to finally visit the farm to learn all about the process. We gathered around the family dining table to hear their story. Joining us there was Melise Diaz, the French woman who inspired it all with a taste of her homeland's foie gras. So my name is Maëlys Diaz, and I'm the French friend on the, on the farm, <laughs> I guess. I'm Ross McKnight. I am one of the owners and the operations manager of Backwater Foie Gras. So tell me how this inspiration started. Well, it started with a trip in France where we brought back some foie gras, mm -hmm. my husband and I, and we were very friends with them, so we wanted to share that little piece of joy. And I think that's how the idea started in their, in their head. We were like, oh, you have to taste this. This is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. We didn't know. We knew that we wanted to start a farm and that it would involve poultry. But, uh, you know, there's, it's very difficult to farm in general. It's very difficult to start a farm. It's very difficult to start a farm that uses, uh, you know, regenerative, what might be called regenerative practices or just pasture-based practices. And so it was helpful to find a niche and they provided that idea. And once we started doing some research, we realized, well, it's really not done, but we're crazy enough to try. So, yeah. So, Melise, tell us about your background. I got married when I was 22 to a my husband, who's American. He's from California. And we've lived in France uh, seven years uh, before having a job offer in Louisiana, in Covington. And we were like, oh, that'd be cool for the kids. We had three back then. And to, have, to experience America a little bit. So we decided to take it. Uh, it was my first time away from my family, away from my hometown. It was a very big adventure. Um, and we've loved Louisiana. We love the people. Everybody's so nice. And we've 
met good, great friends. Uh, it really, like, even the experience on the farm really changed our lives, our perspective on things. So what does your family have to say about this little American project that you've been working on? They love it. My, uh, my dad was an engineer uh, with airplane, which is very common in Toulouse. Everybody does that. <laughs> and um, I'm a chiropractor, actually. Um, so, yeah, I, they were not expecting us to do that at all. <laughs> But, you know, I've always had a lot of passions uh, that have to do with making stuff. So baking, I love sewing, I love drawing, I love all of that. And I go from one that lasts like a couple months to another one to another one. So I guess the thought was just another one of those. <laughs> I don't think they were that surprised, but they were pretty happy that I kept a link with France. And so you tempt Ross with the real thing. You bring the foie gras home from France. But I never thought he would, ha he would come back and be like, hey, let's I think let's, you had your doubts because, because you're French, so you had doubts that we could produce. I had doubts. Because, so I made them taste the foie gras. I the, had doubts too. The first, uh, the first batch was not that successful. I mean, mm -hmm. you had the surgery and stuff. And no, then and those ducks, like, we don't even know. I went to France. Uh, I went <laughs> to visit my parents that summer. And I met some, I, we decided, um, Ross sent us over on a mission to meet, to meet foie gras farmers like, mm -hmm. that did that. And the farmer was like, well, you know, so these guys were really interesting too because they had, like, their parents wanted them to have big jobs. So they studied, they got the big jobs. They were like, I don't know, dentists or professors or whatever. And they were like, okay, now we've got the big jobs, but that's not what we want to do. We want to be farmers. <laughs> so they proved that they could do it, and they abandoned it, and they decided to study to become foie farmers. And so they did it, and they're doing it so well. Um, they have 70 ducks, but they only do foie gras, and they made an amazing product. So that guy explained to me everything, like how the ducks cannot be scared, how if you see like, they don't digest, you can't force, force feed them. Like forced feeding is not a good thing to do actually. Um, he walked us through everything. I took a lot of notes and then we studied the notes. We studied a couple of really old books that I had found in, the, in an old like library. And he was like, the farmer was like, you know, I studied a lot. That's a lot of experience. I don't, I don't know that you can do that with like by yourself, just winging it basically. But so I told Ross, I was like, I don't know. Like, are you sure you want to abandon your job and do that? And he was like, yeah, let's do it. So he did it. And what was your job? What were you doing? I was in finance. Uh, I was a financial advisor. Yeah. So I, I studied English. I uh, have a, I guess, degree in English literature. And then um, I had gone on to start a master's at UNO, which was going just fine. But then I started a family and decided that I needed to go to work. So, um, you know, I've had a couple of different roles. And then finance, I did really well in. Um, and, you know, the money was there and everything. And I had good clients and worked with good people and had good relationships, but um, it wasn't my vocation, you might say. I kind of knew, I think actually when I took that job, I told my boss, you know, 
full disclosure, my goal is actually to start a farm in three years. <laughs> so what kind of farming did you think you were going to do before you ate the foie gras? Uh, I had considered chicken, pasture-raised chicken, because everyone eats chicken. So that was kind of the the easiest route, and it seemed like, although there were already people in the area doing that at the time, and so I wasn't exactly certain. So it helped to have a completely new and inspiring direction to go, which it's, it's really nothing like raising chicken. I mean, Miley's can tell you as well, but it's, uh, yeah. I mean, they're... It's, it's the process, the whole process is very hands-on and very involved and you have to have, it's very skilled labor. Uh, not that raising pasture-raised chicken is not at all because I do that too and respect that. <laughs> but, but as far as like the intricacies and the, the sort of like refinement of the process and having to know very detailed procedures in order to get to the end product that is foie gras rather than um, just sort of like, we'll feed them this and we'll continue to give them this because you're, you're now dealing with an animal that you have to supplement on a schedule mm-hmm. um, and watch that very carefully. Yeah, so. you have to be hands-on and just watch them that they feel good, that they're not sick, that they're not picking on each other because it's going to stress them out and they just need like peace and mm-hmm. being there twice a day is like really complicated so I kind of translated the two books. Well, all the notes. You translated all yeah, the notes. Yeah, I translated the get the farmer's interview. I translated the books, like what I thought was important to know. And then I gave it to them. Then, honestly, that's pretty much what I did. My husband was a lot more present, and he was uh, helping with processing almost every week for a really long time. Well, you had to watch the kids while I did that, so... I did, I did watch my kids. <laughs> so you were participating, very much so. Um... Yeah, and it was quite the adventure, honestly. It was not what we thought it would be. Like, processing weeks are, processing days are very tiring, you know, and demanding, and he comes back, and he's all sore everywhere, and, but, you know, it's super rewarding when you eat the product, and in the beginning, he tried to do some foie gras mousse, and I was like, I don't know, it misses that, and it needs that, and, and little by little, he got there. Honestly, they got there. All of them, like, cooking their product. It's as good as what I can have in France. Next, we were joined by Ross's parents and wife, who all live on the farmstead and play very important roles okay. there. This is Dorothy McKnight, the farmer's wife, <laughs> farmer, mother, homesteader. <laughs> Great. There we go. Julie McKnight, mother to Ross, mother-in-law to Dorothy, grandmother to all the kids, and um, I participate with packaging and um, grocery store sales and a little cooking and babysitting, which is the best part. And I'm Dan McKnight. I'm the father, husband to Julie, father to Ross, father-in-law to Dorothy, and farmer some of the time, tend to fix the broken machines, mostly. So, um, what did you all think uh, when Ross decides to leave the financial world and become a farmer? Ross is a, a man of many talents, and he's learned a lot of things uh, and, and has done the good job of participating in everything he's put his mind to. He puts his whole heart and soul into it, and mind into it, learns every aspect of everything whether it be horses or bagpipes or 
guitars or banjos or trombones or uh, he did really well in in the financial world when in his work there he was an up and comer and um, uh, circumstances changed his perspective and has always had his little farm in the back of his home there in Covington and uh, always talked about wanting to do more so it wasn't a big surprise and it's usually not a surprise anymore when Ross changes his mind about what he's going to direct his attention to in life but he's held on to this for quite a while and I think it's going to stick he's doing well at it <laughs> I knew they had to do what they felt led to do and where their vocation was. So we tried to be supportive, and um, so much so that we really wanted to live on um, a place with acreage and share that experience with them. So it was a perfect opportunity. Um, we were excited about the foie gras, even though I had very little knowledge of it at the time. And I know that whatever they lay their hands to, they do well. And so um, I guess I was supportive. When we were thinking about this whole enterprise, Dorothy and I started to look around for properties. Um, and we had found one that we really liked a little bit further up the road in Isabel, uh, which is really bottom land. But a cash offer had been placed on it like the day before, so we couldn't do anything about that. So we were still looking. We found some acreage in uh, Sun, which is also in this area, Sun, Louisiana. Um, but we would have had to build quite a lot. There were no structures. Mm -hmm. So uh, mom and dad, I, I don't know exactly, remember, I guess I don't remember exactly how it happened, but we started talking and decided to look together, and dad had actually started to look around and send us links, you know, to different properties and stuff like that, and I remember him sending this one, and it really caught my eye because there's a couple of different uh, residences. So we actually live in the barn dominium, so there is a... It's actually a concept that's really old. It, uh, in Germany, it was very common. It's called the Hallenhaus. And it was basically you know, a big hall down the middle of the barn. And on one end or above would be the dwelling. And then the animals would be below. Um, so that's kind of how we live, except it's more of like the workshop and the and processing room. we don't have room. animals downstairs. We don't have animals <laughs> downstairs so much. Um, we do on the side here, but it's, it's not really underneath us. But um, yeah, there are a lot of things about this property that we didn't identify initially as being appropriate but have worked to our benefit. Even down to the backwater, we named the farm backwater before we had this property. That's right. Yeah. And we actually have a backwater there, there is down a, there. So why did you call it backwater? Why <laughs> was that the name? That. Okay. So Louisiana is a backwater. I mean it's you know we're and it's a good thing, right? Because you need some isolation in order to build culture. Um, so the, the line backwater, the backwater, right. It comes from an essay by Walker Percy when he talks about Covington. He has an essay specifically on Covington. He talks about how Covington, he likes to live in Covington. The reasons why he lives in Covington as a writer and he calls Covington a backwater of a backwater. This was in the eighties. Right. Yeah. Like New Orleans <laughs> being a backwater and then Covington being a backwater of a backwater. Mm -hmm. So uh, it comes from that phrase as well as that sort of, you know, well, who are we exactly and what are we trying to do? After hearing the amazing tale, I couldn't wait to get out into the fields to meet the birds and see the operation. We began at a modified chicken trailer where the baby Pekin ducks were peeping up a storm. This is, these are some baby Pekin ducks. These are actually for... Uh, these are for Miss River and for um, 
Dickie Brennan's. Right yes, on. ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And Aww. this is kind of a mobile brooder system we have. So this little structure is mobile. It has wheels on the back. Uh-huh. And you just lift it up and you can move it. So basically when they don't need heat lamps anymore and they don't need bedding added, you know, to keep them out of their poop, um, then we will just lift this up and push it back. And this will be their little tractor on pasture. And so they'll be on grass inside of this uh-huh. with a hanging feeder and waterer. Um, and then eventually they graduate to pins, and I'll show you those later. And how old are these? These are just about three weeks old, yeah. Really? Actually, no, these are just two weeks old. Yeah. They're they so grow fast. Big. They grow fast, yeah. They grow really fast. And so we just keep them with you know, steady supply of fresh water. They have a non GMO grain ration, and um, you have to give them little, little tiny pieces of rock. It's called grit. So they can, um, those actually are retained in the gizzard where they grind up their food. It's some muscle surrounding their stomach. How long have you been growing out specifically for restaurants? Well, we, we've started to transition mainly into that model because it's, since we're such small scale, it's the most sustainable way for us to do business is, you know, okay, you know, what are you doing? What are you trying to accomplish? And, um, you know, you want a superior product and you want it local. So we collaborate in that way. Um, and that also allows some really interesting things to happen on the plate, right? Because it's not just what's available. Oh, like I want X number of chickens. Well, no, it gets a little more detailed than that. I'm serving this type of dish. You know, I need these sorts of elements. And then we might choose a specific bird for those elements that they need. And so it's, you know, it becomes something that's really part of the terroir rather than just like, you know, off a truck, you know, from Minnesota. <laughs> How old will these guys be when they show up on the plate at Margie's? These will be eight weeks. And I actually harvest these early um, just because they get to a really nice manageable weight, like between three and four and a half pounds. Um, and then they're really tender, but they also have dark meat. And so they have a lot, like, a proliferation of really dark meat, beautiful, succulent dark meat. So, yeah, meat chickens grow fast. They grow fast. So they'll go, at about three weeks, they'll be out on pasture, and they'll be on pasture until eight weeks when they go to slaughter. Our next stop was Backwater's state-approved processing facility, the place where the birds are dispatched, cleaned, butchered, and packaged. Just like everything at the McKnight Farm, the processing shed is designed to dispatch birds in the most humane way. From the time the baby chicks arrive at the farm, right through the moment they meet their maker, utmost care goes into providing a stress-free environment, which in turn guarantees the most delicious tasting product. This is where we uh, go ahead and do the deed. And actually, it's very quick because we debrain them. So, like, immediately lights out, and then we bleed them out. So it's like, I mean, an instant. So we have to scald them in hot water to loosen up the feathers. Um, and then we pluck them. This is this we had to import from Mylisa's home country because it's specifically made for the fattened ducks. You can't get something like this here. We looked all over. Um, and what it does is these two little metal rollers roll together and sort of pinch the feathers off rather than beat them off with rubber fingers. Because they have such tender skin, because it's so fatty, we found that using a conventional plucker with where all it is is just these fingers, it really tore up the flesh. So, uh, so we have to dip them in hot wax, chill them, pull the wax off to get all the pins off, pull the rest of the pins off by hand, 
then go eviscerate them, then they go and they get chilled. So. For the operation to be sustainable, it's important to maintain biodiversity by running multiple species on the land to continuously build up vital pasture. That's why guinea hens, red ranger broilers, creole breast chickens, and most recently heritage breed Gulf Coast sheep have joined the Pekins to provide income for the farm when it's too hot for seasonal foie gras production. The reason there, there are flocks everywhere instead of one just giant barn, right, is because uh, we're trying to use the animals to, first of all, we want them to be what they are. Uh -huh. So we want geese to behave like geese and enjoy life like geese. And we think that makes them taste better. <laughs> um, you know, they have access to grass. They've eaten, you'll see these these brown patches here where it kind of looks like straw. Oh, uh -huh. So this is all, this, that was like the old crop of rye. We seeded rye everywhere, and they came through, and they just destroyed that rye and ate the seed heads, ate the stalks, um, and I came back and just mowed behind them. But so their geese love to eat grass, so they're getting a lot of their nutrition just off the pasture, and then they get a little bit of a supplement. And some of these will be added. So geese are really good watchdogs. So we'll add one to pretty much like any flock that we have out with birds. We might add a geese. Yeah, they call them a guard goose, right? And they'll. They'll notify you if there's an aerial predator. Yeah, they're, they're loud and obnoxious and they like to scare things away, so. Over here on the left, we have our breast chickens. Well, these are technically, these are Creole breasts, right? We can't say they're poulet de breasts. We, oui, because you're not in France. Because I'm not in France, and that's a controlled name of origin. So these are, uh, you know, they're raised on our soils uh, with our methodology, which pretty much mirrors what they would be doing. Um, but they are Louisiana grass chickens. That's yes. wonderful. But So we're bringing some of these to the Dickie Brennan's group. So the sheep are, I think, what are they, critical in the uh, Livestock Conservancy list? They are uh, Gulf Coast What's native sheep. Oh, they're mm -hmm. Gulf Coast native sheep. Yeah. So cool. we chose them, or I guess I selected them. Yeah. And I was thinking, I need to get into sheep because I need a ruminant, right? We need them to go ahead of the ducks and eat the grass, turn it into meat as they move along, and also leave their droppings, right, manure the pasture. Mm -hmm. But basically cut it down to a level where the ducks can comfortably go through it. And the ducks, you know, if they're just mashing down long grass, well, then you get thatching, and you get some things that are undesirable as far as the, uh, the fertility of the pasture. So it's nice to have these guys go ahead and clip it down, and then the ducks will come through, and we don't have to mow it, right, as much at least. We don't have to mow it as much. We do have to mow the brushy stuff. But... Yeah, the sheep are mainly for meat, um, and they, the Gulf Coast native breed is what you call a land race breed, as opposed to a standard breed that is bred to look a certain way. So these are bred based on their you know, resiliency to parasites and their ability to sustain the uh, climate, the temperatures, the, uh, the weather of this area. So if ducks were just the only thing running on here, well, they would never, the pasture would never rest from uh, that manure load, and so those pathogens would always be there. Yeah. And so eventually you'd have problems with health, you'd have to use things like antibiotics or whatever. Um, and you wouldn't have the benefit, you'd have to come out here and mow, you know, you'd have to do all kinds of things that are mechanical. But once you incorporate all the other animals, these actually support the foie gras production. So everything's here. It, it all does makes actually, sense. right, it funnels into that, but it's also productive in its own right. Because everybody so. out here who lives on your farm is working for you, in essence. Yes, everybody, everybody has a job, and that's in accord with their nature and their dignity. 
You know, the sheep wants to be a sheep, and we're going to let it. Foie gras production requires special feeding that takes place for just a few weeks before the birds and their foie gras head to market in the fall. During our early summer visit, we discovered some other farm animals in residence in the Gavage barn doing their part for the effort. This is kind of our main Gavage barn. This is the rosary barn, actually, because you can fit 50 ducks in it. So we have, uh, we separate it into five different sections. You'll see there's a rail going through at the top, down the middle. Uh, that's where we suspend the, the gavos, which is the funnel that we feed them with. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. They have waterers in there. Right now, because the, the bedding builds up to about 12 inches over the season, we have pigs in there. You have pigs in there and now? And the pigs are turning over that bedding for us uh -huh. in search of the spilled fermenting corn. So yeah, these are, uh, this is bacon and prosciutto. So these are cooney coonies. They are uh, what you might call a lard breed. Um, so, you know, used to be that great tradition of preserving things with lard and curing back fat and things like that. So uh, these are one of those breeds. They're actually native to New Zealand. Uh, sort of the, they call it like the Maori pig. Right, so you saw the brooders, so they'll start in there. They'll get, be in the brooders to about four or five weeks for muscovies, uh -huh. which are slower growing. Uh, then we'll move them out to pasture, but they'll be out on the pasture and they'll be rotated around the pasture until they're 12 weeks old. And then we will start the uh, pre-gavage process while they're on pasture, which is about a week long. So we give them as much feed as they want for an hour a day. And that's when they start to gorge themselves. So it kind of kicks in that instinct, well, hey, I need to prepare for, you know. And so they're going to eat and they're going to stuff themselves. And you'll, you'll go in there at the end of the feeding and, you know, their crops will be really large. You'll see it in the front of their chest. Uh, and that starts to dilate the esophagus so it has a greater capacity. So this is something that would, you know, they would do to themselves if they were going to go on a long migratory flight. And they would start to gorge themselves. So we're simulating that, right? And then... Once that process occurs, then we can bring them into Gavage and we can feed them uh, around 400 grams per duck every day of corn. Well, the age that they're brought in here, so they're on It's about 12 or 13 weeks, yeah. yeah. Between 12 and 14 weeks, mm -hmm. they, they come in here. So, uh, first we have to cook the corn, so we have to prepare the corn a certain way uh, to make it eminently digestible for ducks. So we cook the corn, add some uh, olive oil. Sometimes we have whey from the cow and milk. Or skim milk. Yeah. Or skim milk, yeah. So we'll add that. Uh, and then basically we have, so wherever you see these little hips, right, these little metal piping sections here, uh, this is where one of these partitions would be attached. So this basically is the area where 10 ducks would be. So they'll be in here, their water will be there. If I'm gonna come in and feed them, I have a mobile partition that I have with me all the time. And so that'll go about here where I'm standing and I'll herd the ducks behind it. So they'll be here, I'll be sitting there on a little stool. Uh -huh. I'll have my bucket of corn, my little scoop, and then um, I'll take one duck at a time. I'll put them between my knees, uh -huh. kind of like this. I'll be sitting kind of like this. They'll be between my knees. And then basically you insert the funnel into their esophagus. Uh -huh. And they don't have, you know, cartilaginous rings or nerve endings or anything like that. The duck's biology is so different from ours, you know, that there's no, there's no suffering at all. And also um, you have to know that if there was suffering, they wouldn't make foie gras. Yeah. Because they would be stressed, and so it would Correct. 
it would prevent them from digesting correctly and making the foie. So it is really important that they don't suffer, that they're not scared by other animals or dog or anything. They have to feel good to make good foie gras. You know, if you're doing something against an animal's nature, generally speaking, you're not going to have a good product. Um, but this is, again, this is we're replicating something that occurs in nature. Just like you might, uh, you know, a cow, for instance, will eat seed heads, right? It'll eat grain in nature. But if we want beef that is grain finished, maybe we raise the cow in pasture, but we want to finish it on grain. Um, well, they're not, they wouldn't necessarily have access to all of that grain at once, mm -hmm. but we bring it to them and say, here it is. And then we get beautiful results from that. So that's kind of the, the methodology and the philosophy of, of foie gras. And before, yeah, feeding them, the next time you're supposed to check that their esophagus or their storage area is empty. Right, so they and don't all they actually well. get 400 grams mm -hmm. each feeding uh, because there might be a duck that can't take as much or there might be a duck that can take more, not that we actually give them more, but, you know, the max is kind of 400 grams mm -hmm. twice a day and 10 hours apart so they have time to digest. But, uh, yeah, so one thing ducks don't particularly like and birds in general don't particularly like is, like, being held. So, you know, if there's any discomfort to the duck, they don't Maybe. necessarily enjoy the fact that I'm cuddling them. There yeah. might be the, uh, the random house chicken that might be my well, chickens are okay with it like for whatever held, reason not, not uh, the ducks. ducks don't really like it no. ross's parents julie and dan mcknight invited us back into their home to discuss their roles in the operation and their combined hopes for the family's future tell me about the process of you saying hey ross maybe we should do this together that is a good question <laughs> the you were just worried probably a little worried, a little worried. worried. You know, Ross and Dorothy were young, young family, young, young couple with not a lot of resources accumulated yet, and so, <laughs> so yeah. For as far as I know, and so you know, they they were looking at properties that uh, that would have taken them too far away from Mimi and Papa. That's me and Julie, and would have set them apart and. Uh, um, unable to visit and to be around them as often. So, and, and I'm, uh, my past is from Texas, you know, when you drive in from Louisiana to Texas, everything opens up, right? It's wide open country. So I was, and I uh, worked on a ranch and a farm in my younger years. And so I always thought that I would have more land than I had at that point in time, but it wasn't a real strong desire. But they brought it out, I mean, and, and that they want to do gardening and they want to raise animals and all that fit right in with my past. And uh, my, you know, I consider that interesting and fun and right. And so the idea probably came from Julie, she's full of bright ideas, was to try and find a property that could accommodate both of us. What do you do mm. around here most regularly? When things break or when something needs to happen different, like, you know, moving animals or something, and there's not enough time to get that done before he has to go to do the next thing, then, you know, he'll call out the troops, and I'll come downstairs. I work upstairs in the home office and uh, put on the boots and go out and do it and come back in and get back to work. So I do that, and, and I find that, and I kind of enjoy it, although I don't know how to do it well, that I am typically repairing the machines that we need you know, when they break. Because to stop your daily farming chores and to fix a broken machine, nobody has time for that. Because you never know how long it's gonna take. How has it felt 
when you go into a restaurant, if somebody's using your product, they're calling it out by name on the menu. That's true. We used to go to restaurants. <laughs> yeah, so honestly, bringing up Oxlot again, um, most of our restaurant customers are in New Orleans. Uh -huh. um, Ross goes to New Orleans quite frequently. I almost never go into New Orleans. <laughs> But um, yeah, the first time we ever sat down and saw our name on a restaurant's menu was Oxlot. Um, and that was really, that was really surreal. Um, yeah, the first time that? it just blew that me was, away. Yeah. It just blew me away mm -hmm. that, you know, it was it something was so good. we could do yeah. because, you know, it's like farming is that first, really, that first vocation of, of mankind. And it's, it's just really strange when you've, you brought something up from, you know, a tiny little fuzzball and then created this beautiful thing with it, cooperating with you. And um, then, yeah, it's, it's some way it's, it's elevated to a level by people who devote their time and energy um, and their talents to the pursuit of cooking food well. Um, and so they're really honoring it more than even maybe you could. Mm -hmm. So that was... That was a really beautiful thing. I think I even cried a little bit. <laughs> but, I would have. Well, right. It was just like, okay, you know, maybe maybe we can do this. And, you know, maybe we can really... Yeah, that was towards the beginning. Maybe we can do something yeah. beautiful. For it been a year. Because that was the goal, really, like to do something beautiful. I, I wanted to mention something that is um, the foie gras, and you may have already said this, not only does it is it a wonderful product, but it produces... An extraordinary bird that the um, restaurants love, you know, a much more succulent yeah. uh, mm -hmm. duck breasts and leg quarters yeah. and unparalleled. Yeah, you can't find it. And and speaking about customers, when we went into COVID, things changed a lot, and restaurants weren't uh, ordering like they were when we first mm -hmm. started up. So we started approaching groceries, and we were um, very blessed by um, Calandros in Baton Rouge yeah. and Aquistapace and Dornax, who were open their doors, I mean, immediately to the product. And we weren't really planning to sell on, you know, to Retail. the groceries, but they, they were really um, very supportive and helped us through that hard time. And some of them, we still do sell to Aquistapace and yeah. um, Dornax when we have our fat ducks. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about what comes next here for backwater foie gras. So we may we may end up finding ourselves doing lamb, specifically the Gulf Coast native, which I think would be very special. Oh, it would be uh, so exciting. <laughs> I agree. Um, so that that will probably happen. We have a couple of lambs that we'll you know consume amongst our families because the first thing we need to do is is eat the food that we're producing, you know? That's the most efficient use of it for everyone. So we are, we are striving to do that, striving to make that more well-rounded, hence the rabbits and all of that. Yeah, so like the name of the company is Backwater Foie Gras, but really like the name of the farm is Backwater, Backwater Farmstead. Yeah. And we chose Farmstead because a farmstead is both like a farm and a working homestead. So we not only focus on products that we sell, we focus on feeding our family. So yeah. we have our garden and the milk for our family and all the other About random, that, it might seem like random animals, but vine, you know, the pigs and the bunnies. Vines, yeah. um, Something I've considered, you know, where will we be in 10 years? I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I think what I mentioned before is probably still where I stand is that uh, I'd like people to to set up some kind of system where people can learn while on a working farm and then apply that. I'm not so certain that, you know, backwater needs to be everywhere, you know. It needs to be everywhere as far as, like, the legacy and the, where people learn the skill and how they came by it. And, and uh, But I'd like to see a, a unique touch uh, spread across the state. I'd like to see more foie gras farms. I'd like to see people learn this ancient tradition, you know, this at least 5,000-year-old tradition that humans have done since humans were humans. We've been speaking with backwater foie gras muse, Melise Diaz, farmer Ross McKnight and his wife Dorothy, and Ross's parents, Dan and Julie McKnight. Look for backwater foie gras on restaurant menus or meet the farmer himself at the Crescent City Farmer's Market, where you can purchase fresh foie gras, foie gras mousse, pâté, terrine, confit, magre sachet, duck fat, and a variety of other delicious products. You can also order online at backwaterfoiegras.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on your preferred listening platform. Big thanks to our sponsor, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. Request the free Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide today for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com slash guide. This podcast was produced by Blake Longlinet for Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>